Tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow, tomorrow, and tomorrow creeps tomorrow, in this tomorrow. petty pace from day to day, the last syllable of recorded time. And all our yesterdays have lighted fools the way to dusty death. Out, out, brief candle. Life's but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. Significance Shakespeare might have indeed thought foolishly about the seeming purposelessness of life. And I'm not just using this as a play on semantics. Macbeth's fifth act is a gorgeous, artistically veiled ontological argument. And that is perhaps why it resonates with so many people of all walks of life. But I'm getting ahead of the ball now. When I was eight years old, I used to come home from school and fill the bathtub up with warm water and climb into it with all my clothes on. That's not how it went at all. I was 10 years old. And I also used the fanciest dress in the closet. Mom got really mad, remember? Excuse me, but what do you really know? You're a child. I was there! I was there too! Welcome to Constructive Interference, a mini-episode in preparation for the upcoming episode, Memorization. I'm Carla Taylor. I'm Carla Taylor. Why do we remember what we do? How do you want to be remembered? These questions are very closely tied into what we find meaningful in our lives. Whether atheist or believer, at some point we all want to feel as though our lives have created some sort of impact. We want to be significant. As life shapes us, we like to think we have control. And one of the ways we do that is through the narratives we tell. Or is that my personal narrative I'm feeding you? Our touch, the shadow we cast on the ground, it's all just consciousness. And it happens with every blink of the eye. It's the stories we leave in our wake that help us validate our own existence. How you choose to remember what you commit to memory says a lot about what you value. But memory can be quite unreliable. Even research conducted on people with highly superior autobiographical memory showed significant inaccuracies in their memory recall. Author Mary Carr referred to memory as a pinball in a machine it messily ricochets around between image, idea, fragments of scenes, stories you've heard. Then the machine goes tilt and snaps off. Significance and context sometimes help us commit stories to memory. All that we live, all that we do in the here and now becomes memory once it enters the past. Nabokov? Nabokov saw the awakening of consciousness as a series of spaced flashes, with intervals between them gradually diminishing until bright blocks of perception are formed affording memory a slippery hold. We yearn for familiarity, to reconstruct safer, happier times. As the moments pass, new truths are born and just as quickly dissipate. The purest truths rest in the present. While in Amsterdam a few weeks ago, I got a chance to visit the Van Gogh Museum. I've been wanting to go since I was a little girl. There was an ongoing exhibit in which artists are given a chance to respond to Van Gogh's letters to his brother Theo. There was one particularly moving letter, written by author Nicole Krauss. Brooklyn, Wednesday, March 11th, 
2015. Dear Vincent, you write about fear, fear of the blank canvas, but also, on a larger scale, of the infinitely meaningless, discouraging blank side that life itself always turns toward us and which can only be countered when a person steps in and does something, when he breaks or violates. It's extraordinary that I should have been given your letter now, because it's exactly that act of breaking that has been on my mind this last year, and which I feel has everything to do with how I want to make art and how I want to live. It's a strange thing about the human mind that, despite its capacity and its abundant freedom, its default is to function in a repeating pattern. It watches the moon and the planets, the days and seasons, the cycles of life and death all going around in an endless loop, and unconsciously believing itself to be nature, the mind echoes these cycles. Its thoughts go in loops, repeating patterns established so long ago we often can't remember their origin or why they ever made sense to us. And even when these loops fail over and over again to bring us to a desirable place, even while they entrap us and make us feel anciently tired of ourselves. And we sense that sticking to their well-worn path means we'll miss contact with the truth every single time. We still find it nearly impossible to resist them. We call these patterns of thought our nature, and resign ourselves to being governed by them, as if they are the result of a force outside of us. The way that the Caesar governed, rather absurdly, when one thinks about it, by a distant and otherwise irrelevant moon. And yet, it is unquestionably within our power to break the loop, to violate what presents itself as our nature by choosing to think and to see and act in a different way. It may require enormous effort and focus. And yet, for the most part, it isn't laziness that stops us from breaking these loops. It's fear. In a sense, one could say that fear is the otherwise irrelevant moon that we allow to govern the far larger nature of our minds. And so, before we can arrive at the act of breaking, we first have to confront our fear. The fear that the blank canvas and the blank side of life reflects back to us, which is so paralyzing, as you put it, and seems to tell us that we can't do anything. It's an abstract fear, though it finds a way to take on endless shapes. Today, it may be the fear of failure, but tomorrow it will be the fear of what others will think of us, and at a different time it will be the fear of discovering that the worst things we suspect about ourselves are true. My lover says that the fear, which seems always to be there when one wakes up in the morning, and which he feels in the hollow between his ribs, above his stomach and below his heart, comes from the other world, a phrase that always brings tears to his eyes, and by which he means the awareness of our finitude, our lack of the infinite and eternal. But I would also add to that fear, being anticipatory, is always without knowledge. It is a mental calculation based on the future unknown. And yet, the experience of fear is the experience of being in the grip of a sensation that seems to possess an unassailable conviction in itself. To be afraid that the plane will crash is, in a sense, to assume that the plane will crash. And yet, even if we could scrape away the many forms our fear takes and get to the underlying source, our mortality, our division from the infinite, we would still discover that our fear is not based on actual knowledge, unlike the part of us that chooses to be free. Bravery is always more intelligent than fear, since it is built on the foundation of what one knows about oneself, the knowledge of one's strength and capacity, of one's passion. You implied as much in your letter. However meaningless and vain, however dead life appears to be, the man of faith, of energy, of warmth, and who knows something, doesn't let himself be fobbed off like that, you wrote. 
He steps in and does something and hangs on to that, in short, breaks, violates. And so we find ourselves once again in front of the blank canvas, the blank canvas which reflects our fear and our opportunity to break it. In Jewish mysticism, the empty space, the chalal panui in Hebrew, has tremendous importance because it was the necessary precondition for God's creation of the world. How did the Ein Sof, the being without end, as God is called in Kabbalah, create something finite within what is already infinite? And how can we explain the paradox of God's simultaneous presence and absence in the world? And the answer to this, according to the Kabbalah, is that when it arose in God's will to create the world, he first had to withdraw himself, leaving a void. To create the world, God first had to create an empty space. And so we might say the first act of creation is not a mark. It is the nullification of the infinity that exists before the first mark. To make a mark is to remember that we are finite. It is to break or violate the illusion that we are nature that goes around in a loop forever. But it is also confirmation of our knowledge and freedom, which is all we have in this world. Sincerely, Nicole Krauss. Our blank canvas must be filled with fearless truth. In that way, we will enjoy witnessing our own lives. We will rest easy knowing our impact. Most of all, the mark we make will help us remember ourselves fondly. And in the process, others will too. All the people and trees Special thanks to Kristen Doyle, Norton Armour, Nick Melas, Noel Taylor, and Jazz Mills. Check out our website for more information about this mini-episode, including music by Adam Torres. Ripple Puddle is written and produced by Carla Taylor. Like the quietest dance, I was locked in my hands when I heard Voices from the top of the mountain Voices from the valley below I am ready to join them I am ready to go Now 
Now the world outside is just blooming Green as the green that was spilled on the hills and the leaves Time will come when the water will open And the angels will cry Just like the time before They were voices from the top of the mountain They were voices from the valley below I am ready to join them I am ready to go I am ready to join them I am ready to go I am ready to go I am ready to go